editing magic. Get it in post. It'll be good. is a pastor, a podcast about life and set-apart ministry. Each week we sit down to discuss our experiences and challenges in small-town parish ministry and in PhD work and ask others to join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. All right, welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, everybody. Uh, Joe is not with us today, so I am Nick filling in, and I'm happy to be here with my co-host of my new show. Uh, hi, Ethan, how you doing? Hi, well, welcome. Welcome to the newest episode of Two Broke Girls. <laughs> two, two Broke Girls. Uh, Ethan, uh, you are in school. That seems to be going okay. Tell us about it. What's going on with school right now? School's going fine. I am... Um finished up a ton of reading. I'm, well, I'm almost done with a ton of reading. I finished up a big uh, chunk of reading for my Carl Bart class that's happening today. Um, Carl Bart, fun 20th century German, well, Swiss theologian. Um, and so we're starting the church dogmatics now. So we're now diving into like the big phone book style books. Um, I'm also finishing up for political theology tomorrow, we have to read a Reinhold Niebuhr book. Uh, we're reading Children of Light and Children of Darkness. Nick, have you ever read that book? I have not, actually. It's it's a cool book. Um, it was written in kind of, I think it was 1944 when it was published. And Niebuhr, it's not a long book. It's, it's uh, a quick read, I am discovering. But it is about um, the, uh, gosh, it's sort of, it's basically about the state of liberal democracy as Niebuhr sees it and um, where he thinks the kind of fundamental theories of like free market capitalism and and the democratic process and 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 the notion of the liberal state where he thinks they kind of go wrong and and how, why historically he sees it that way and then he also kind of brings forward like marxist thought and he says um marxist thought goes wrong in in different ways as well and and what i think is important about this is that like niebuhr because it's kind of the the mid 40s has both kind of the destruction of the liberal nation state in Nazi Germany on one hand and then he's got the rise of communist Russia on the other hand and so for for Niebuhr it's like it's very stark like he's able to see you know oh, okay well these two it's not it's not theoretical which is what I think makes the book kind of interesting and um the reason why it's called Children of Light and Children of Darkness is because he's kind of using this framework in, uh, I think, in First John, 
where First uh, John says that uh, um, so the children of light are like are like the is the poetic reference in First John to like followers of Jesus, but First John says that the children of darkness are more wise that they're more wise to the happenings of the world and stuff like that, and so Niebuhr kind of takes that and says um, and uses that framework and he says the reason why. Um, the kind of liberal political theory and sort of Marxist political theory are um, not working the way they say it's supposed to work is because they are both, they are, they are children of light. They're the, the he calls them the stupid children of light. That's what he actually says. The stupid, <laughs> chil the stupid children of light. <laughs> like that. Um, and, and, uh, and, it's because, and, and this is, I think, an interesting sort of critical edge to Niebuhr. It's because both of them start from the same vantage point of um, sinless humanity. Um, they are too, Niebuhr would say, they are too confident in the human being's ability to. Um, balance their their desires and their good with the common good and and as a result both are the children of light and and are and are not and because the children of darkness for Niebuhr are are those people and those politicians and those folks who who bank on human selfishness and human greed and and are often very evil, are often very incorrect, and and we should not we should not trust them, but are wiser than the children of light, you know, because they understand that no no this is just how it works. Like sure, so it's not just a philosophical starting point; it's about the manipulation of those things that is what makes them evil, right? Not right, the right. idea that people are greedy and selfish and sinful, no, but the no, fact it's that not you that. take that and you manipulate it and use it to your advantage. You know, exactly being selfish and greedy and <laughs> exactly exactly. <laughs> and for Niebuhr, this is like an important device to like kind of frame it all. Um, be, because, uh, and I actually, as I reflect on the time period, I think it's fascinating for Niebuhr to name, um, Russia, you know, communist Russia as the children of light, you know, or, or to name, um, and he, he breaks down, he breaks down a ton of, you know, kind of, uh, early capitalism theories and, and, and like John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and, you know, all the, and Adam Smith and all these folks. and um, it's it's a it's a really interesting kind of kind of pithy, you know, kind uh, argument. Um, uh, and and I think that and so for Niebuhr, Niebuhr would then Niebuhr even talks about the ways in which Christian theories kind of contribute to both liberal democratic and and Marxist theories and 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 basically Niebuhr is calling for I haven't quite finished the book yet, but basically Niebuhr is calling for a, a reevaluation of the democratic process that throws utopianism out and and that just says hey we will achieve no full justice this side of the eschaton it just isn't going to happen um and so no the the capitalists are simply wrong 
society will not become more just the more we protect the individual right to own shit. It just isn't going to happen. And, and, and he's like, and the Marxists are wrong. No, society will not become more just the more we, we hand, you know, if we eliminate all, you know, kind of private ownership and turn it into, transform it into pure social ownership. It just won't happen, you know, and, and he kind of lists and, and talks about how and why. Uh, and so he, yeah, he's calling for a kind of re, he's calling for the children of light to learn from the children of darkness and to, and to essentially become realists, you know, and to just say, no, this is, we're, this is, uh, the, the utopianism is, is, uh, is something we got to throw out. I'm particularly interested, he's, he's got a really fascinating kind of critique of, of capitalism that I find a little more compelling than his critique of marxism but that's okay because he kind of says that too he's like uh, he he says flat out a couple of times that he thinks marxists are closer to the truth anyway where, where he's he's kind of like marxists are still stupid children of light but like they're they are also not trying to obscure what he calls the social dimension of property you know like the the liberal democracies and, and the capitalists always attempt to obscure what is obvious about property, which is, is that of course it's social. There, there is no, you know, and we know it, we know it is, we know it is because um, everybody needs each other's property in order to live. If, if we did not have access to, to public property, then we would all, all of us, a hundred percent of us would just fall apart. Like even the people that own everything would also fall apart because if their servants didn't have access to the shit they owned, then it wouldn't matter. Like they couldn't be their servants and yada, yada, yada. I would say it's a dangerous, I mean, it's always a dangerous game. Nobody's got a perfect ideology, but I think the dangerous part about what he's saying here is that, um, cause I agree with a lot of what you just articulated my hesitancy is on the notion that we're never going to achieve sort of the perfect utopia on this side of the eschaton. And and my reasoning for being hesitant about that is not because I think that's wrong, <laughs> sure, but because every time we start to talk that way, I feel like it becomes an inevitable nihilism. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, the Wesleyan in me can't help but get, like annoyed when I hear stuff like that, even if, I, even if there's a good part of me that ultimately thinks that's true, but it's like why it's like why I ultimately don't like Nadia Bowles Weber, right? She's just very mm -hmm. Lutheran and she's very anti-Christian perfection. And I get right. why, and there's a lot of good reasoning behind that. Mm -hmm. And her points aren't bad necessarily. Sure. And, you know, she does a lot of good for empowering people who've been told they have to live to a particular idea of perfection, right? Mm -hmm. And how that's hurt people. And that's great. But like the Wesley enemy can't help but be like, yeah, but then wh what are we doing? Like, why, why not? Why wouldn't we be striving for perfection? Maybe the ideas of perfection have been wrong, right? Sure. Like maybe mm -hmm. the idea that you have to be a straight white man to be perfect is stupid, you know, and that's ultimately been what's caused a lot of hurt and pain for people. But like, the abandonment of the pursuit of Christian perfection on this side of the eschaton mm -hmm. just leaves me personally with like a full sense of nihilism. Like, okay, well then screw everything. I, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. 
no, I think that's I think that's important and correct. Um, I think that Niebuhr is um, Niebuhr is uh, Niebuhr's realism. So Niebuhr is often called a Christian realist, like he that's sort of the Niebuhrian school, if you will. Um, Niebuhr's Christian realism, I think, is at its best when it um, when it is when it is uh, heavily critiquing um, the kind of u- utopia utopias, mostly because um, Niebuhr note mostly because often when human beings are uh, uh, believe in utopias and apply political power to achieve it, and I think and Niebuhr says this, I think he's right they they often stop at a point that is simply not utopia and and they imagine that because because some group of people and it's usually white rich people because some group of people have achieved happiness that we've arrived and 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 they are uncritical of the of the people you step on in order to kind of achieve it and so i think niebuhr's christian realism is most effective in kind of those moments where where he tries to remind folks like that at at any given moment your power uh can be used as a sin against you and against others at any given moment you know the the inherent kind of corruption of human nature will will cause you know you to do really bad things or what was more likely is will reveal that you've already done incredibly sinful things in order to achieve this in order to arrive at this um, and i think in those moments it's good i think another moment Niebuhr's christian realism is good is that it allows him to kind of um, move between things really easily, and so he's not really bo- he's not really kind of bogged down in a particular tradition, and so he's not a Lutheran. He's not really a Presbyterian. He's 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 just sort of he's kind of there, and he can kind of he can kind of juggle and do some different things. But you're right. Like from Wesleyan perspective, Niebuhr is not interested in like a Christian perfection. Uh, he he has he has sort of started in a sense, by ruling that out. It's not that he's not interested in Christian ethics, and it's not that he's not interested in those things. It's just that Niebuhr is, uh, Niebuhr already begins from the perspective that um, the holy world is um, on the other side of the eschaton. And, and any attempt to achieve that holy world now is um, misguided. I will say this though, I think that one of the ways in which Niebuhr is misguided is, is that Niebuhr, at least in the books, in the book I'm reading now and some of the other stuff I'm reading, is that Niebuhr has a sort of a limited view of what power is. And so he spends a lot of time talking about power in Children of Light and Children of Darkness, and it's effective and good. But but I think that if Niebuhr entertained the possibility that that the world could be made more holy without using political power. I think that Niebuhr would be more um, open to that, but I just don't think he's really ever super considered it in that way. But so that's what I'm reading. Um, and I also uh, have been reading a lot of Paul Tillich, Yay, who I know you love. I win. <laughs> yes, you do. 
it's really cool actually the i, I wanted to share this with you because I, I thought it was fascinating um i've got a book that i read uh for my theologies of culture class called theology of culture by paul tillich and um it's a collection of different essays that he wrote on a number of, of topics within this. One that I wanted to talk to you about or, or share on the podcast was uh, an essay on symbols, which I thought was really um, provocative and really interesting. But I also uh, bought a, a book of Paul Tillich's sermons because he's got a sermon on powers and principalities that I wanted to read. Um, which I liked. It, it was very different from other powers and principalities things, but but I, I thought was I thought was interesting. Paul Tillich as a preacher is uh, Paul Tillich is often accused of being an atheist by um, people who are a little more Bartian and a little more obviously more evangelical or, or whatever. Not that Bart was an evangelical; he was definitely not. But but Paul Tillich uh, listeners, Paul Tillich was a philosopher and theologian from the early and mid 20th century. He fled Nazi Germany um, and taught at Union Theological Seminary in New York for a long time. And then also taught for a while at Harvard and Chicago. And um, according to Dr. Larry Bouchard, one of my, my, my theology of culture professors, Paul Tillich has since sort of fallen by the wayside um, with the rise of certain other schools of thinking. But Dr. Bouchard's like, but I have faith that he's going to make a comeback. And I'm like, well, we'll see. But I, I like him. Um, but Tillich was really, Tillich had apparently a, a feud with Bart where he, he accused Bart of being a, a theological theist. And Bart's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> All right. I like Tillich fine, but that's a pretty dumb thing to say. <laughs> Well, this is what he meant. This is what he meant. He, he says, uh, he's like, well, you're, you're positing a being. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, you're, you're imagining that God is um, the most mysterious, most incomprehensible, most powerful, most um, obscure, most unknowable thing <laughs> to to ever walk around and this thing god can um uh, uh be totally above you and below you this thing god can you know do whatever you know you say he does but he's still a thing you know and 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 for paul tillich like paul tillich had some really interesting kind of metaphysics he's working with on the ground of being but um, for Paul Tillich, he was also an existentialist. And Paul Tillich would say, and here's the thing, a God who is, who is a thing uh, is a God who, for the existentialist, will arrive at and eventually go, you can't possibly be God. And try, to, and try to move you away, move this God away in order to find the real God. And, uh, and so, and Bart, Bart was frustrated with that. <laughs> I imagine he was. Tillich is right, though. <laughs> we always we've talked about this a lot, and it's just this is also just a part of Christian history. Like Tillich did not invent this idea. No. 
Um, and when we've talked about it in the past, we tend to just call it the Mr. God phenomenon. Yes. <laughs> yes. People believe in Mr. God. And we always mm. say like, no, no, I don't believe in Mr. God. That's an evangelical idea. <laughs> you know, right. like I don't, not that they have a monopoly on that. We just find it prevalently there, you know, like mm-hmm. God is the biggest, baddest, strongest Zeus around, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and that's it. But, uh, but, and you're exactly right. I like Tillich. Um, Tillich's got a lot of, in that kind of metaphysics, he's got a lot of um, interesting parallels to like Dave, people like David Bentley Hart or like patristic thinkers or, or medieval thinkers and stuff. But, but I'm, but I'm particularly interested in, in his existentialism, like, like him framing that question that way. I thought, I thought was um, very different than like a David Bentley Hart or like a, like a patristic thinker, because for him, it's primarily about, you know, the human being being gripped, right? Like it's about the human being full of anxiety and full of, 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 ultimately desire to to know the ultimate and and i find that argument to say no theological theism is 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 deficient a for logical reasons but b because it actually does not it it, it does not um uh, uh fulfill the anxiety of the human being the, the human being is it eventually going to going to look at this god and be like well there has to be something what's behind you what there has to be something else because it's just a thing even if it's the biggest and most powerful thing yeah man Tillich was the first real theologian i ever engaged with other than maybe marcus borg if you count him um and uh Tillich always gripped me when i was a young christian at the age of 21 trying to struggle my way through a senior thesis that you half wrote with me. <laughs> um, I told that story. But Tillich, Tillich always gripped me because of exactly that. His idea that the per- faith, that that pursuit of God is rooted in an anxiety. Uh, and that speaks to me bef- even long before I was a Christian or knew anything really about God. Um, there was, I always had a, desire and anxiety around knowing uh as as Tillich might put it the ground of being or as Mm -hmm. other theologians might put it you know and uh a lot of us are chasing after that not knowing how to articulate that and Tillich was really the first one that I read that articulated that for me and that's why Tillich always even though I haven't read a ton of his work at this point but like the courage to be will always have a special place in my heart that book um had a lot to do with starting me on the path of Christianity. So mm-hmm. it is funny to hear that he is accused of being an atheist a lot. Maybe that is, maybe, maybe I also sensed that coming out of atheism. Mm-hmm. Maybe that drew me to him as well. I don't know, but no, Paul it, Tillich, I'm glad you're reading him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll say one more thing about Paul Tillich. Cause I'm, I'm interested in, in how you think about his ideas on symbols and then I'll, then I'll get off stuff and want to hear about your church and everything. Um, reading his sermons, Paul. So like, one of the things that I'm discovering is that Paul Tillich often, you know, would say to um, like a lot of critics, like who kind of level things like that against him, like what you're talking about, it, it does not seem like the sort of personal God of the scripture. Like you're talking about things that are, I suppose have some, you know, uh, uh, rooting in early Christian stuff, but, but it's ultimately just seems to be so 
outside of, because Paul Tillich was a Lutheran, so outside of this sort of Protestant Lutheran, you know, way of seeing things, um, why even be a Christian? And Paul Tillich, from what I understand, would often say, you have to read my sermons. Like, please read my sermons. <laughs> of course I'm a Christian, you know? And so reading this book of sermons, I get it. Like, I'm like, oh yeah. Like, like Paul, Paul Tillich is, uh, do you know Paul Tillich was a, was a army chaplain in World War I? And had and had like two nervous breakdowns, like in the middle of it. I I did know that. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I did not know that. And so like, and he's like pulling from that when he's writing about, you know, he's he's his sermon on powers and principalities. He pulls from Romans, like nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth nor angel nor principality. And he's like, he he's kind of like, this is obviously the most beautiful thing ever written. I think about it whenever I think of, you know, shells blasting in my ear my weeping over fallen comrades and, and, and i'm like oh paul <laughs> what are you saying paul but no i i totally understand what he's saying like in his sermons he's able to kind of show how this sort of background philosophical stuff you know is ultimately oriented you know as, towards christian thinking and the christian life so paul Tillich on symbols he he has this really interesting essay in the theology of culture where he talks about the difference between symbols and signs and uh, and he says of signs that um, and I might be I'm going to be heavily paraphrasing the signs part because that's that's not what really interested me, but uh, he says of signs that signs, well, they signs are sort of like um, you know letters, like like they don't they they kind of they signify right like they signify something. They're, they're not really connected organically to what they're signifying. You know, they, they kind of have the curious ability to kind of last for a very long time as being the signifiers of it. A stop sign is a good example. Paul Till doesn't use this example, but Dr. Bouchard does. A stop sign um, is a sign, as a sign, do, doesn't mean, means stop, but the sign does not do something to stop you. It just means stop, right? Paul Tillich would say that a symbol is, is uh, um, not a sign, but it's, it's a living thing that participates in the power that it symbolizes. Uh, and so Paul Tillich says, so symbols are, are organic. They live and they die. And they they die when they no longer um, have the ability to partake and participate in the power of what they are symbolizing. Uh, and so um, Paul Tillich's example is the American flag. Um, that's that's the, one of his his particular first examples that the American flag is not a sign. It is a symbol because it is alive, because it partakes of the power of the United States. And something about it um, does the United States. It, it does it. You see what I'm saying? Um, I find that so provocative. Like I read that and I was like, not just on the the flag pit, but like that whole concept, I find deeply provocative. 
um, the Eucharist would be another thing that, that Paul Tillich would name. And then the last thing he would name is God. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and would say, this is why, uh, you know, conceptions of God die because because eventually they sort of cease to symbolize the power that they partake of because for Paul Tillich you know the ground of being is for Paul Tillich like like things like the Christian view of God you know in in its kind of content are 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 a symbol you know it's a symbol that points to and partakes of the power of the ground of being. Yeah, you know? good. I wanted to clarify that. He wasn't saying God, the ground of being. No, 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 no. Itself is a symbol, but our conceptions of that yes. ground of being become symbols of that ground of being. Right, I right. I follow now. You, you lost me for a second there. Yes, I'm sorry. It. No, you're the, fine. The, I just wanted to make sure I was following. <laughs> right. The, the God beyond God. Is what is what Tillich would say. Tillich would pull from a, a Dominican priest named Meister Eckhart, who used to pray with his with his disciples, "God save me from God." Um. Uh, and 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 Tillich kind of sees that sort of wisdom in that is is uh, uh, our symbols of God. Um, and Tillich Tillich brings these two things hand in hand in the essay. Our symbols very, very, very easily become idols. Uh, and Tillich is like, that is bad, you know. And, and the reason why they so easily become idols is because symbols are alive. Symbols are not um, signs. They're, they're, they're living. They're, they're, they might be creatures. Tillich doesn't really, at least in the essay I read, he might do it in the systematic theology, doesn't really name them ontologically that, in that way. But like they are living things that live and die and have a history, and um, and so our the symbol of God that the Christians use can easily transform into an idol. The symbol of the flag, the symbol of yada yada yada. Oh my gosh! And I mean the symbol of the church. I mean, haven't symbol we of conflated in at least in in America? Haven't we conflated the church with God in yes. so many ways? And by the church, I don't even mean like the the body of believers necessarily but like our institutions and our buildings even mm -hmm. um those uh external examples of the church I, I guess the institution is not as external but you know what i'm saying i do i do um, yeah i've been thinking about that one a lot recently it's been a huge issue i've been having personally so that's mm -hmm. interesting to name that so so what do you think of that nick what do you think of this idea of uh, that's really the phrase he uses. Symbols participate in the power of what they symbolize. What, what do you think of that? I think I would need to spend more time working through how I under, I agree with everything we're saying about symbols. I'm struggling more with the differentiation with signs um, hmm. because I, especially with the stop sign example that uh, Dr. Bouchard gave you, just because my annoying undergraduate religious studies brain wants to push back on everything and, and annoy my teachers because that's what I do. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say the, the main difference was said that it was um, backed by something that's like, it is living, it's backed by a, a, a 
we're tied to a, a larger reality. It isn't a stop sign ultimately backed by the military hand of the state, you know, with uh, traffic laws and police officers and things like that. I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I think, um, I think that an argument could be made for that. I think that it's important to remember that Tillich is thinking existentially. And so um, Tillich would want, perhaps, I don't know, Tillich perhaps would want to, to ask, what is it about the stop sign itself, the octagonal red thing, that um, by its participation in the power of stop or in the power of even the state, uh, causing you to stop you you know you the being to to do it um and and even even if you put it that way and i think dr bouchard even said this even when you put it that way dr bouchard said an argument could still be made like the uh, dr bouchard's like i don't drive uh but i would hope that when people drive and they see a stop sign they without thinking start to move their foot over to the to the to the brake and so there's a sense, perhaps, in which that example may um, um, partake of of a certain kind of power, you know, to do that. Perhaps. Yeah, I'm thinking about how, like, I live in the middle of the country out here, and I drive at night sometimes, and there ain't nobody on the road. And there's never once in my four years living out here been a police officer around here, right. like, hanging out on the road to pull me over. And I know nobody's around. There's nobody behind me, anything. But I will still stop at a stop sign. I will still turn my turn signal on, you know, two seconds mm -hmm. before I get to the stop mm -hmm. sign. And I sometimes I do that, and I sit at the stop sign, and I look around, and it's like midnight, and I laugh at myself, and I go, but why? Why yeah, am I doing yeah. this? <laughs> like I, there's, yeah. I'm literally not telling anybody that I'm turning right, and yet I put on my right turn signal. I'm literally not. There's nobody coming. I could see headlights. It's a straightaway. It's like an easy, like four-way stop here. There's nobody here. Yet I stop for appropriate amount of time at the stop sign before I go. Mm -hmm. Why? What causes me to do that? And I think about that stuff sometimes. Not that it's bad to do sure. those things, because it's like, you know. Ultimately, it is safer to have some of those laws, especially with driving and things. And so it's good to be like practicing it and keeping those reflexes up for when it does matter. So like there's, but isn't that exactly what we're talking about? Like there's some greater ethical or moral power there also mm -hmm. saying, even if there's nobody around me, it's still good to stop at the stop sign so that I don't lose my, you know, automatic reactions to stop at the stop sign when there are cars coming and things like that. I don't know. I right, just, right. I'm no, I, I, I don't I don't disagree. I really don't. I, I think that um, the distinction is if if there is a distinction, the distinction sort of comes down to the sort of living quality of the symbol compared to the sign. Um, the flag. So so Tillich Tillich very clearly said, uses the flag as an example for a symbol. Um, he doesn't use stop sign as an example for a sign. That's what Dr. Bouchard does. But, but uh, for the with the flag, there there is a sense in which the flag can cease to to to, to symbolize something uh, because it lives and dies by the power that it partakes of. And so and so, there's a sense in which uh, one can imagine. 
um, uh, uh, when the flag ceases to symbolize the United States. I don't know how or, or when, but well, I was but wondering like, if we're, we're we're in the beginnings of that now. Even I mean, sure. isn't that what uh, so many conservative thinkers are so concerned about with the kneeling at the football games mm, and yeah, yeah, people not respecting the flag, quote unquote, in certain ways? And plenty of the people who do those things would would argue and say they are respecting the flag and that it does mean stuff to them. But aren't we? aren't we seeing it start to erode some of that? Because some of the part of the point of the kneeling protests in particular is the idea that the flag doesn't stand for what it says it stands for. Sure. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't, it doesn't have uh, freedom and justice for all as we claim in the Pledge of Allegiance and the, the symbolism of the flag itself, right? Mm. And so until it does represent those things, people are going to kneel. You know, that's some of the argument. Now, maybe some people will listen to this and get mad at me for misrepresenting it. I'm not speaking for everybody who supports this or backs it, but I, I mean, that's sort of the sense I get. And that's what ultimately is um, upsetting people who disagree with the kneeling protests is mm -hmm. they do see that they're picking up on exactly what you're saying. It's the erosion of that symbol. And they believe that the protesters are creating the erosion. Whereas the protesters would say the erosion's there and we are calling it out and naming it. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of the difference in the ideology behind the protests in particular, but like, but, but aren't we kind of there? Aren't we in like the stages of the flag losing some of its symbolism, at least to some people? I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's really, I think you're right. I think that's really uh, powerful um, because so, so this notion that the flag partakes of the power that it symbolizes uh, is important. I think uh, because because that's what makes the flag, that's what not only gives the flag its life as a symbol, but it makes the flag um, uh, effective as a symbol. And so if you compare that to the Eucharist, right? If, if the Eucharist, and, and Tillich, Tillich, I don't know if Tillich would have a, would have a problem with this if, if, we, if we said it in this way. If the Eucharist ever failed to symbolize the power of Jesus Christ, the power of God, of, of God's salvation. If it fails to symbolize it, then, then the Eucharist is a dead symbol. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It, it not only, not, it, it doesn't become a sign. It doesn't do anything like that. It, it just sort of ceases to be, it sort of ceases to, it, it is merely bread. So um, I think we see an example of that in history. I know I'm interrupting your thought, you're good. but like, this is part of, part of what sparked the Protestant revolution, right? Is that, um, at the time, people didn't know Latin, only the educated knew Latin. Masses were done in the Catholic Church fully in Latin, and there wasn't enough bread to give to everybody who was forced to congregate, to come together, to take, to be at Mass. And so the priests would, on a high balcony, do a whole service in latin that nobody understood and they would take the bread and the wine on behalf of everybody right people couldn't take it themselves and nobody understood what was happening and no it wasn't like for the people they said it was for the people but nobody knew what was happening and so doesn't the eucharist in that moment didn't it at least for the crowd of regular people cease to be the power yeah. of and isn't yeah. this part of why people rebelled against the Catholic? It's part of it. There was a lot, obviously, in the Protestant mm -hmm. Reformation, but it's a piece of why there was this revolution against it. Um, yes. So yes. I think that example that you're giving 
has happened. Uh, I, I agree. And then we've seen a reclaiming of that symbol. Sure, I think. sure. So it's I not to so say too. that symbols can't be reclaimed. Right, right. Um, so, so here's the last thing that Paul Tillich sort of says on, on symbols. Paul, Paul Tillich then says that, that religious symbols can be anything. Uh, there's actually no limit on religious symbols, pr provided that they live by partaking of the power that they symbolize. Um, anything can be a religious symbol, and and for and for Tillich, that's that's primarily because of his ontology, where where he sees you know the divine as as sort of the ground of all things anyway, and so. Anything has the potential to be a religious symbol. It's not that it's not that any everything already is, because that, that would be silly, because because symbols live and die. They they have a history and they, they come up and, and come down. Everything is spiritual, Ethan. Everything, everything. is spiritual. God is I already know that. Well, I already, that. I'm pretty sure that's what Tillich is saying. You know. <laughs> Tillich, is, Tillich is just uh, one of those guys, you know. He's, oh. <laughs> oh no. But but I actually but I find that kind of last part to be really fascinating because uh, because for Tillich it's it's not so much that you know Tillich does think God has a particular kind of content and that the ground of being is is you know rooted in love and power and fullness and all that good stuff. Um, but I do find that that kind of view that that anything can be a religious symbol even for a little bit even even if it's just for a moment um to be very interesting um this is sort of where I, I think one of the ways that Tillich has fallen out of favor is is his understanding of the religious i think i think that's a way in which Tillich has fallen out of favor because like i can imagine even just me saying that i can hear Stanley Hauerwas in my head or you know all of these people that come after Tillich who are like who's or cone who's religion you know like like what are you talking about you know and 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 sort of the the rise of the contextual theology but what's really interesting about Tillich the last thing and then and then we'll get off of Tillich for now is um the way in which liberation theologians tend to really like Tillich um I read an article about Dolores Williams who's like one of the major original womanist theologians and Dolores Williams talks about how in some ways, in some ways, more than anybody in that, you know, kind of era of that early to mid 20th century German era, Tillich is the most beloved by liberation theologians. Uh, and, you know, and, and Dolores Williams says, what is the courage to be, but not, but not the call for vulnerable people to insist on their existence? You know, what is, what is, um, uh, the critique of James Cone against the white God, but Tillich saying God is a symbol, you know, and, 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 and the white God's not real anyway. You know, the, the, the white God is, is merely a, is merely a symbol of white power. You know, it, it, it's the, a symbol that partakes of white power and does not actually partake of the ground of being the, you know, the, the real power. And and like she talks about like Tillich's life, like Tillich when he moved to America and came to Union, 
uh, hung out in Harlem and listened to jazz and, you know, <laughs> uh, was an army chaplain in World War One and had nervous breakdowns and was like, Jesus Christ, this is terrible, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and moves to the United States and doesn't know any English. And it's just like, uh, you know, I guess we're here, you know, leaves like his entire career behind and, and, you know, stands in solidarity with not that, you know, and doesn't just sort of join the intelligentsia when he comes to the United States. And I, I find that interesting uh, that, that some of these voices I'm seeing kind of look at Tillich and they're like, well, Tillich's kind of, he kind of gets it, you know, in a way that's different from some other people. So. It's that rooted in anxiety bit. I'm telling you, it's like the most powerful part of Tillich and it really speaks to a lot of this stuff. It's very different from a lot of the, the there's a reason why Tillich is almost never picked up by, um, uh, I can't even think of the word now, evangelicals, but I was even thinking prosperity gospel people. Right, right. Uh, the, the reason Tillich's never brought up by that, because like prosperity gospel doesn't want to talk about things being rooted in anxiety. Prosperity gospel wants to make you feel good. And like when you're pursuing God, you're getting uh, less anxiety and you're, you know, it strips right. that away. Tillich's not interested in that. Tillich's like, oh, no, no, no. Pursuing God is uh, an exacerbation of your anxiety. Right, <laughs> it's, uh, right. The more you pursue God, the more anxious about the ground of being you will become because mm. <laughs> it's infinite and unknowable. So like, it's just going to increase that in some ways. Uh, and he never shies away from that. So um, that would go hand in hand with liberation theology pretty well because i mean uh, an oppressed people are naturally rooted in an anxiety differently than a privileged class of people right uh, anxiety is not fun for those who are really committed to being comfortable no right no um and there's nothing comfortable about liberation theology at least not for white dudes like you and me no, uh, no and i imagine not. uh the there is a comfort for oppressed people, but, but even that probably only goes so far because it calls you to do uncomfortable things, even as an oppressed person. Uh, not that I will uh, deign to speak from an oppressed position. So others can speak to that better than me, but still. Um, yeah. That's why you won't find it in white evangelical Christianity in America. No. till it just won't be brought up. Nope. So I, I think it's funny. Like I, I if I become a Tillich person, and find myself writing about Tillich in, in papers or in dissertation, I will, I will thank you. I'll, I'll put it in there. <laughs> Paul Tillich. He's a wonderful, wonderful individual. individual. I'm going to close this one out. Friends, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? I am Ethan, and this is Nick, and we will see you next time. And then a clever thing at the end.